The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. I have heard, maybe you have too, usually from a pulpit, not ours, but something to that effect, maybe in a Bible study, and ask the rhetorical question if those doors behind suddenly threw open and Jesus walked in this room, how would that affect you? How would that change your praise and your worship? Well, in some sense, it's a silly question, but in one sense, it's a very good question. It's a silly question because when, if you know, the New Testament, after the resurrection, Jesus didn't open doors. He walked through them where he suddenly appeared. And uh, that would certainly affect us very, very quickly. Not the least of which would be you would no longer be paying attention to me, but I would understand that. Uh, it, is, uh, it is a silly question in the sense that he is here. He is near. So when you praise and you worship God, whether it be on Sunday morning as you're walking your way through your life every day, are you thinking, is it on your heart, in praise and worship? And no, smart, no small part of reverential fear that you do so in the presence of Christ. So that takes us, I don't know if that's an introduction or a conclusion, um, but uh, that's where we're going to start today. This morning we're going to continue in our study of the attributes of God. Last week, Pastor Phil presented to us the greatness of God from Psalm 145, verses 1 through 7. That is, of course, the psalm that Robin read to us just a minute ago. And we're going to pick up there this morning as we consider another of God's amazing attributes, that being the attribute of the nearness of God. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles, if you're not still there, to Psalm 145, where we will be in just a minute. As, Psalm, as Phil pointed out, and Robin read this morning, the superscription, that little first part that you read in the top of the Psalms, tell us that Psalm 145 is a psalm of praise of David. This is the last psalm as the psalms are organized. It's the last psalm of David in the book of Psalms, and it's fitting that it is one of praise. As Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, Psalm 145 is indeed a monumental praise psalm, a fit summary of all David had learned about God during a long lifetime of following hard after the Almighty. David writes here, not as a king to his subjects, but as a common man amazed by God's grace, a personal testimony to the many wondrous acts of God that flow out of God's unsearchable attributes, these attributes that we've been studying these last weeks. Verse 1 begins with David extolling or exalting the Lord as my God and my king, because that is where all praise begins. That is where all praise belongs. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the creator and the sustainer of all life, and he is our redeemer and our savior, and he alone is worthy of such praise. The psalm calls on us to praise God as well for all that he has bestowed upon us, his grace, his goodness and compassion, his steadfast love, because he is glorious and mighty, he is righteous and full of kindness, and because he is always near. 
for all of those things and more. Hebrews 13.15 calls on us to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And how can we not do that? How can we not offer up our own sacrifice of praise to a merciful and loving God who, as we read in, as we read in verses 14 to 16, picks us up when we fall and through his open and generous hands supplies all of our need according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. In the opening verses, David commits himself to bless and praise the name of God every day, forever and ever. And he is encouraging us in this psalm to praise God right along with him. He says in verse 4 that one generation shall commend God's works to another. Phil pointed out that that is the challenge, that is the command to us, to indeed, particularly as parents and grandchildren, to be handing down God's glorious gospel to the next generation. But at the same time, it is happening right now. As we sit here this morning, as David's words of praise so long ago are echoed right now here in our generation at Gold Country Baptist Church as we too declare his mighty acts. We'll continue our study today with verse 18, with a subject that should be near and dear to all of our hearts. It must be near and dear to our hearts because we are near and dear to his. My friends, the nearness of God is the glory and the hallmark of our Christian faith. There is no other religion, there is no other faith, as it were, who can profess a God who is near. Islam can't. To be near to Muhammad. You have to travel to his gravesite here in Medina, Saudi Arabia, because he cannot come to you. And Buddhists, to be near Gautama Buddha, you must travel up to 84,000 places around the world, because tradition has it that he had his cremated remains divided among his followers and therefore spread throughout the world. It is said that his two teeth and one hair are purported to be in Lou Mountain Temple in L.A. And even, even if you did travel to those places, you might be somewhat near to them, or at least near to what's left of them, but they will not be near to you. Indeed, they cannot be near to you because they are dead. You can also travel to the tomb of Jesus at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. But you will find it to be empty. Because as the angel declared to the women at that same tomb on that resurrection Sunday, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has what? He has risen, and he has risen indeed. Come, see the place where he lay. Because it is an empty tomb. Brothers and sisters, the nearness of God begins with the fact that we serve a living God who despite our weakness, despite our sin, condescends every day, every moment of every day to be near to you and me in ways that we will never be able to comprehend. So close that as a familiar hymn says, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. 
So with that this morning, we're going to consider the nearness of God in four aspects. And we'll just leave this up here. Uh, The first one is the plan from before time began. Second one is the nearness of God, people, place, and presence. Near through the blood of Christ, that's the key. And near now and forever. And then we'll see how all of this comes together and what the Lord wants us to know about living out our lives. So uh, we will be in various scriptures today, but our primary text is one verse. It is 18, 145, 18. It says very simply, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Join with me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do praise you this morning. And although it is beyond our comprehension to be sure, we know and we acknowledge that you are here. You are in our midst. For those that have committed their lives to Jesus Christ, you through the Holy Spirit live within each one of us. It isn't, doesn't come any nearer than that. And in that we praise you this morning. We pray that you would open our eyes to understand as best we can through the gift of the Holy Spirit just what that means to us and most importantly what you would have us do with that in our lives. So Lord be with us. I pray you grant me the unction of the Holy Spirit to bring your truth and only your truth that all our good folks that are listening now will hear you and not my words but from you because you are a great God. So we give you our morning indeed our lives to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord is near to all who call on him. If we ask ourselves the question, we kind of have already this morning, what does it mean that God is near? I am sure that with our finite minds, we will never be able to fully understand or describe it, much less understand it. And that is as it should be. In verse 3, David describes the attributes and mighty works of God as flowing out of his unsearchable greatness that Phil preached on last week. However, we need to know that unsearchable does not mean unknowable. Unsearchable simply means that God and all he does transcends or is beyond our ability to comprehend it. And indeed, God has revealed himself to us through his word, from which we learn of his attributes, which tell us who he is, what he does. He reveals himself through the Son, and of course he reveals himself through the majesty of creation so that we can know him. And in fact, Psalm 66.5 invites us with these words, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. And we should do that. We must do that. As Martin Lloyd-Jones again wrote, our supreme need is to know God. And I would add to that, even if it takes an eternity, which it will. But what a joyous pursuit. One theologian put it, to ponder the unsearchable greatness of God is a glorious, endless occupation. And indeed, as his people, that is job one, getting to know our God. The dictionary definition of near is to be a short distance away or short time away in the future. In a different context, it also means almost. Well, needless to say, that is woefully inadequate 
to uh, when describing what it means that God is near to us, because God is not almost anything. When we think of the attributes of God, and we've said this often, we most often think of his incommunicable attributes, those attributes that only God has that tell us that he is God, that make him God. There's the three omnis, and uh, the omnipotence, uh, omniscience, and omnipresence. And as we've discussed before, all of his attributes, and this is important to us to keep in our, in our thoughts, they all work together completely, consistently, and unchangeably at all times in perfect harmony. In other words, God is not a God of love today and just a judge tomorrow. He is both always and every day at all times. And God is not near to us today and then gone tomorrow. They all work together. So with that, when we think of the nearness, God, uh, the nearness of God, we naturally think of his omnipresence, the fact that he is present everywhere at all times. And because God is omnipresent, he is in, in some sense with all people everywhere. However, the nearness of God relates most closely to the attribute of God's imminence. Now, God, we know that one of his, his uh, attributes is transcendence. The fact that he, he uh, Psalm 113 tells us, he rules from above, he looks down on his creation, he looks down on the heavens. That is the God that, most, that the world most commonly thinks of. But God is also imminent. The imminence of God speaks to the fact that not only is he present at all times, he is intimately involved in every aspect of his creation, especially in the lives of his people. Of the many passages that speak to the nearness of God, every one of them speaks only to God's relationship with his people. The Bible never refers to God as being near to an unbeliever. Unbelievers cannot rightfully call God Father. They cannot call Jesus brother. And they cannot, they are not involved, they cannot share in the spiritual fellowship in the body of Christ that we have, that believers have. His nearness speaks to his personal and intimate relationship to those, back into verse 18, who have called on him in truth. Spurgeon wrote that God is not only near in his omnipresence, but to sympathize and favor. He does not leave praying men and men who confess his name to battle with the world alone, but he is ever at their side. The scripture tells us, makes it clear, that it was God's plan from the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world, to be near to his people. 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21 tells us that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last days for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. This and many other verses in scripture to refer to the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. That time in eternity past when the members of the Trinity covenanted together to accomplish the work of our redemption. Under this covenant, the Father planned our redemption through the Son in order to save his people. And the Son, in turn, willingly agreed to be sent and do the work of the Father necessary to redeem the elect. 
And that included sacrificing himself as an atonement for his sins, after which the Holy Spirit would be sent. The Holy Spirit would come to apply the work of Christ in the lives of the saints while sealing us onto salvation. So, why is that important to us today? A lot of reasons, but let me just touch on a couple. First, it tells us that God is sovereign, another of his attributes, and he is sovereign over our salvation. If you are a believer here in Jesus Christ, you know from Ephesians 1-4 that you were chosen before the foundation of the world and predestined to be an adopted son or daughter through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, all by his grace and his grace alone through Christ alone. It also tells us that because he is sovereign, because he is imminent, God is providentially guiding every aspect of your lives. In the good times and the bad. Psalm 139.16, David wrote, In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Sometimes sit down and read that. That's very poetic. It is a psalm after all. It is a poem after all. But it is also Holy Spirit-inspired scripture. He wrote, Every one of the days you lived before there were any of them. Now, if you know the rest of that psalm, you know in the beginning it says that he he knows when we rise up and we sit down. He knows our every thought before we think it, every word before we speak it. Then verse 7 asks the rhetorical question, where can I go from your spirit? And the obvious answer is nowhere, because wherever we go, he will lead us. He will lead us. His right hand will hold us. And it also assures us that if God's plan and purpose is to always be near to his people, we can be sure that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And also, we can be assured and encouraged by the fact that the day is coming when in the fullness of time, God the Father will unite all things in Christ, including his church, at which time we will receive our eternal inheritance. How reassuring and encouraging is that? that is worth pondering and meditating on often. So how is God near? We're on the near second point here. How is God near? My old, professor, my old Testament professor, Dr. Snyder, pointed out to us that God's plan of redemption always involves his people in a place experiencing the presence of God. And we see that throughout Scripture, beginning in the garden. First, God created the place. He created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in it. Now, in, um, as we read through the creation narrative, in almost every aspect, we are told that God said or God spoke, and it was so, and it was good. But in Genesis 2.8, we read that then the Lord planted a garden in Eden as if he did so by hand, indicating that this is a very special work for a very special purpose. Then God created both man and woman, and he put them in the garden, that very special place that he had created especially for them. And he set them apart from the rest of creation by creating them in his own image. And Genesis 2.7 tells us that after forming Adam from the dust of the ground, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. 
We don't see this with any other living creature, only with man, which speaks to God's special relationship that he desires with his people and, we, and created us to have with him. The Old Testament scholar and commentator Derek Kidner wrote, Breathed is warmly personal with the face-to-face intimacy of a kiss. And the significance that this was an act of giving as well as of making, and self-giving at that. With God's own breath of life, he gave them, he gave us an eternal soul, and he endued them with his communicable attributes, those attributes that God shares with man that are similar to his own. He gave Adam and Eve the special ability to communicate, He gave them emotions and the capacity to love each other, but most importantly, to communicate with and love him in personal and intimate relationship with him as they walked together and communed in sweet, unbroken fellowship in the garden. There's a song by George Beverly Shea. Some of you may know it. I met him once. He was truly a remarkable guy. And then some of the words say this, My God and I go in the field together. We walk and talk as good friends should and do. We clasp our hands. Our voices ring with laughter. My God and I walk through the meadows' hue. Now that is stylized, to be sure. It is a song, but I believe that there is truth in it. At least it was in the garden. And you know the rest of the story. Despite the idyllic setting in the Garden of Eden, with all of God's loving care and intimate fellowship they shared, Unbelievably, still man rebelled. And with that rebellion came estrangement as God removed them from the garden to face the struggles of a cursed world. But even after the fall, or during the fall, at the fall, in Genesis 3, as an act of God's grace, there came the promise of a better and more intimate relationship with him through the seed of the woman, a promised redeemer that would one day crush sin and evil, and restore unbroken fellowship between God and his people as God intended. So to that end, Genesis 12, in Genesis 12, we read that the Lord called on a man named Abram, ultimately changing his name to Abraham, which means father of multitudes. Romans 4.16 calls him the father of all who believe. And he sent Abraham on a journey to the land of Canaan, where, as we read in Genesis 15, God made an unconditional uh, covenant with him. Uh, That means that a covenant that God would never break. And he promised Abraham at that time that his offspring, his people, would be more numerous than the stars. And to that, God promised to provide a very specific place for those people rightly called the promised land, where he would live with them in his glorious presence. God himself summarized his covenant with Abraham this way. He said, I will give to you and to your offspring all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. But there was a small problem. Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren. So in a miraculous act of God, at the ripe old age of 90, Sarah gave birth to Isaac, who Galatians 4.26 calls the child of promise. And by the way, that same verse calls all of God's people children of promise. 
Isaac would have a son, Jacob, whose, God, whose name God would change to Israel, which means he strives with us, who from, uh, who, from who God's chosen people would descend. And Jacob had a son, Joseph, whom God would send, or would save from the wrath of his brothers by sending him into slavery in Egypt. However, as difficult as Joseph's situation was, God was always near to him. Four times in Genesis 39, we are told that the Lord was with him. And whatever he, whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed to the point that Joseph became second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. God blessed Joseph and his descendants. And according to Egypt, I mean, <laughs> Egypt, Exodus 1, 7, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. In fact, so great was their number that these Hebrews, as they were now called, became a threat to the Egyptians, and with that, they were placed under great bondage. As we read in Exodus 2.23, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Then we read this, verses 24 and 25, that because God was always near to his people, God, and listen to the verbs, God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew. So God raised up in Moses, a man named Moses, who would, through the miraculous and uh, providential hand of God, would lead them out of Egypt and out of bondage and into that promised land. Stop briefly here just for a minute to remember but we often read in the Psalms and actually throughout all of Scripture that in his imminence to his people, in his nearness to his people, God always hears, he always sees, he always knows, and he always responds. He always responds, in this case, to the cries for help and mercy. Psalm 121, one of the ascent psalms, begins, In my distress I called out to the Lord, and he answered me. Psalm 35, 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. God always knows, always hears. He always answers because he is always near. Now you know the rest of the story of Israel. Despite God's great promises, his wondrous works, still they were rebellious and stiff-necked people, and yet still God never left them. He provided manna and quail when there was no food. He provided water when there was no water. He provided protection for their enemies and personally led them through the wilderness in his personal presence as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night so they wouldn't get lost. And to keep them even closer to him, if that were possible, God not only provided for their, spirit, for their physical needs, he provided for their spiritual needs. He gave them the law that pointed them to their sin, but also to their need of salvation, the need of a redeemer. He gave them priests to represent them in his presence in the Holy of Holies, where sacrifices for atonement were made for their sin there on that mercy seat. And there by his grace, God granted them atonement 
with the promise that, that there was an even greater sacrifice yet to come, a once and for all sacrifice, a redeemer, a Messiah, who would shed his own blood, not just for the sins of Israel, but for the sins of all of God's people through all generations. All this prompted Moses to write in Deuteronomy 4, 7 and 8, what a great nation, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on Him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? And God, true to His covenants with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, led them into the promised land. His people in a place, in a place prepared by Him, by God, experiencing God's presence. And then to rule him, to rule them, God rose up a great king, King David, a man after God's own heart, and the author of Psalm 145. However, as great as David was, God promised his people an even greater king, and an even greater kingdom. What verse 13 of Psalm 145 tells us is an everlasting kingdom. And yet still they rebelled until God placed them under strict and severe discipline, not out of hatred for them, but out of love for them, promising in Jeremiah 31, 31, that behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will put my law not on stone tablets, but within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Such is the love of a God who is always near and faithful to his people. The whole of the Old Testament shows us God's great love for his people and promising them and us in Deuteronomy 31 that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And all of this and so much more pointed to and culminated in one climactic moment when the covenant of redemption was realized and the new covenant was inaugurated. So we read in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It is grace and mercy towards his people. God drew still nearer by sending his only son down to earth. God incarnate, who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That first sin in the garden was an act of open rebellion. It was an affront to a holy and righteous God. And as a result, the intimate relationship uh, that God once had with his people was broken. Isaiah 59, 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. And with that, man was not only cast out of the garden, he was sent, sentenced to eternal separation from God, which is eternal death. That comes forward to us. Sin and rebellion always breeds more sin and rebellion, and that is true for you and I as well. And if it is left unchecked, As we read in Ephesians 2, we would have continued to live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, 
and would be by nature children of wrath. But what is next in that verse? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By what? Grace. You have been saved. That brings us back to the covenant of redemption and this all-important word, redeemed. Titus 2 tells us that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That grace was personified in the appearing of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession. This is the church. This is you and I if we have committed our lives to Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.9 says that the church is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are now a redeemed people in a place, that being the church, where we as the family of God experience and, and praise and worship in the presence of God. To be redeemed is more than having our sins forgiven, although it is certainly that. Redeem means to buy out and carries the idea of being ransomed, which is, of course, a, a price that is paid to set someone else free. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And 2 Timothy 2.6 tells us that it, that it was the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. On the cross, our sin was imputed to Jesus. That is, our sin, not his. Our sin was charged to his account. That's the definition of imputation. His sin, not ours. That is the meaning of 2 Corinthians 5.21 when it says, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. It wasn't his sin, it was ours, but charged to his account. Then in Galatians 3.13, it tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And as a result, Romans 8.2, we have been set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Sin no longer has dominion over us. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are now slaves to Christ who redeemed us on Calvary. Romans 3.14 tells us that by taking our sins on himself and subjecting himself to the full fury of God's wrath in our place, that we were justified by his grace as a free gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And because we have been justified, Romans 5.17 says that we have also received the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness through Jesus. And I say all this because this, uh, this, uh, the free gift of righteousness is so important for us to understand. It begins with this. I always have a little trepidation when I say this, so bear with me but it, and follow with me. It begins with this, that to have our sins forgiven on the cross is truly an act of God's grace. 
But in and of itself, it is insufficient to save us. And here is why. 1 Peter 1.16, God calls on every believer not just to be forgiven, but to be holy as I am holy. Hebrews 12, we are told that without holiness, no one can see God. If that's not plain enough, Jesus himself in Matthew 5 said, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. However, forgiven sinners, although forgiven, are neither perfect nor holy because we are still sinners. To be perfect requires the absolute obedience to the law that none of us have done. You know the verse, none is righteous, no, not one. There's only one exception to that rule, of course, and that is Jesus Christ, who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus is the only one who by his sinless life fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law. So, on the cross, even as our sin is imputed to him, it is charged to his account in what is called the great exchange. Jesus imputes his righteousness to us. What the reformers called an alien righteousness. It is not our righteousness. There are no right. There is no one righteous but Christ. But out of his love for us, he takes our sin, pays the penalty, and in exchange gives us his righteousness so that we may one day see God. That is grace upon grace. And with that, having been declared justified by faith, having received the free gift of of righteousness in Christ, we have in the sight of God been made holy, so that one day we will see and we will live eternally with God in all his glory, which was his plan from the very beginning. Colossians 1, 21 and 22 sums it up this way. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil things, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, before God. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Therefore, we are now, Romans 5, 1, at peace with God. We now have the right to be called the children of God, and we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is the nearness and intimacy of a child to his or her father. And here's the culmination of it all, Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ, you who were far off, once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We also need to understand this. Third point. That our redemption is not only a matter of our eternal future. It is is also our present reality. How near is God to us as we sit here this morning? Just before Calvary, knowing that he would soon ascend to the Father, Jesus promised to send a helper who, according to John 14 would be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you, and he dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 6.19 reminds us that our bodies are not our own. They are the temple of the Holy Spirit that lives within each and every believer 
right now. My friends, that is as near as it gets. Now exactly how the Holy Spirit lives within us, we can't comprehend that either. We're still on the unsearchable greatness part of all this. But we do know why he is here, why he lives within us. Romans 8 tells us that he helps us in our weakness, interceding for us in prayer according to the will of God. That makes our communication with God deep, intimate, and effective, bringing us even nearer to him if that were possible. And it is the Holy Spirit that works within us to move us along in our, salvation, our sanctification to conform us into the image of Christ, to which we have been predestined. And with that, our relationship through Jesus Christ is so close. He is so near that believers in him are said to be in Christ. It's high priestly prayer, John 17. Jesus prayed this, The glory that you have... That that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. And then verse 24, we hear the heart of Jesus, our Redeemer, towards you and towards me. Father, and he prays before the Father, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. That is the heart of Christ towards you, to be with you, and in time, have you with him where he is now. He was thinking of you and me. He was thinking of the church just before he went to Calvary. That's how much he loves you. So what does it look like to be in Christ? Well, I'm not sure there's another one that can fully understand that. But we do know its result. 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The remainder of our text, the remainder of Psalm 145, is very simple. It tells us that the Lord is near to all who call on him in truth. To call on him in truth is simply to come to him humbly, in repentance, with a sincere heart, seeking his will, not ours, in trust and belief that he is faithful to hear and answer all who call on him. And indeed he does. So what do we do with all of this? We've seen this morning how God is near to those who believe in faith and who call out to him for his grace, his mercy, his protection, his provision. And we have seen that this is his plan from the beginning. However, we also know, and I believe most, if not all of you, have experienced it, that God doesn't always seem near to us, does he? And that is often when we need him the most. We would be remiss in not acknowledging that. David and the other psalmists certainly did. Psalm 10.1, the psalmist writes, Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 18.44, we hear this lament. O Lord, why do you hide your face from me, afflicted and close to death from my youth? Up, I suffer your terrors and I am helpless. So what do we do when God seems afar off? Well, first and foremost, I believe that Uh, We need to do some very serious, honest soul-searching. 
Does God feel distant or absent from you when in fact it is you who have grown distant from him? So ask yourself these questions. You may be here this morning. Why do I have any unrepentant sin that I need to confess? Am I doubting or struggling against God's will for my life? Am I displeased with God because he is saying no to me for something that I truly desire? All of these can cause us to feel, to feel as if God has abandoned us when in fact he is still with you and he is calling on you actively to repent and to trust and obey him. Friends, when he convicts you of your sin, when he convicts you of things in life you need to change, he doesn't do that from afar. He does that because he's near to you. Because he does that through the Holy Spirit. So in times like this, first responsibility, a first go-to, if you will, is to do what, um, is go before the Lord as David did in Psalm 139. And ask him, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There are also times in every Christian's life when we are just spiritually dry. Sometimes we fall into a time of spiritual depression, times the ancients used to call the dark night of the soul. Those times when despite all that we do before the Lord, we come up empty. And still, God seems absent. So what then? Well, as the song goes, we need to be standing on the promises. We know from our text this morning and many others that the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus promised you in John 10, 28, that he gave you eternal life and you will never perish and no one will snatch you out of his hand. There's a song. I haven't heard it for a long time. It was by the Imperials. And it it makes a point quite sweetly. He didn't bring us this far to leave us. He didn't build his home in us to move away. He didn't lift us up to let us down. Those are pretty profound words. So take to heart, my friend. Psalm 145.18 is an emphatic statement that God is near not might be, not eventually will be, or is sometimes not almost near, is near. God will never text you smiley face, LOL, praying hands from the nearest Starbucks. No, the Lord is near. So my friends, in times of trouble, listen for him. He whispers in your ear in that still, small voice, Don't be frightened, my child. I am here. I am here. Call out to him in truth and cling to the promises that we have here in Psalm 145. Verse 14, The Lord upholds all those who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. Verse 19, He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. In verse 20, the Lord preserves all who love him. So if that is you here tonight, if you are struggling with the feelings that the Lord is not near to you, it's a good struggle. It will turn you to him. Replace your troubled thoughts and feelings with what you know to be true about God and the truth of his word.
Psalm 3418 promises the Lord is near to the ground, the brokenhearted, and saves the crushed in spirit. Remember that he is indeed imminent and sovereign over your life. Like Israel of old, God knows, he hears, and he answers. Because of the work of Christ, we know from Hebrews 4.16 that we can draw near to the throne of grace in confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Preach these things to yourself. They'll give you hope and courage to endure until God chooses to deliver you from your struggles. And for us all, and we are closing in just a moment, for us all, as we live out our daily lives, day to day, good times during times of struggle, God draws near to us when we practice the spiritual disciplines that we um, speak of so often here. The Lord draws near to us when we read, when we study, when we meditate on his holy and inerrant word. Deuteronomy 30.14 says, The word is very near. It is in your mouth and in your heart. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. And he attends every word. As you read his word, know that this is God's personal letter to you. And he will indeed put it in your heart. And when he does, he will give it purpose. God himself said, Isaiah 55, 11, My word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish what I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And he is near to us when we pray. It is in prayer that we experience really our most intimate fellowship with God as we pour out our hearts to our Savior, and he pours his heart into ours. This we can be sure, since the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And he draws near to us when we assemble and worship together as the people of God, as his church. It is here that the Lord works through each one of us to encourage and to be encouraged, to gain strength as we strengthen others, to love as we love, to be loved as we love, and to offer our corporate Praise to God who alone is worthy of that praise. All that said, friend, if you are here without Christ or you are unsure, God is not only not near you, he is a far distance from you. Without Christ, you face the overwhelming sin and evil that pervades your heart and pervades our world. At sin and evil that will devour you without mercy. You are not promised an eternity in the presence of a holy and loving God, but rather an eternity of everlasting torment away from him and away from his goodness. But if you turn to him, call out to him in truth, he will draw you to himself. And you will know him, and he will be near to you now and for all eternity. So let's end our time together with this. We began this morning with the covenant of redemption. That time when before the foundation of the the earth, the Trinity purposed and planned our redemption. We saw how God was always near to his people Israel throughout their journey, when they were faithful and when they were rebellious, as he is with us. 
We saw how our loving God gave his only begotten son, Jesus, to live the perfect and sinless life and to then die on the cross for our sins, granting us his righteousness, granting us the free gift of his righteousness, the free gift of his grace, the forgiveness of our sins, so that we may be holy and one day see God. And how the Lord established his church at Pentecost, giving us the Holy Spirit to guide us through this life, sanctifying us in the truth of God's word. All that brings us back to our original premise, that God's purpose was and is for his people to be in a place experiencing his holy and loving presence now and forever. Began in the garden, continued in the promised land, is experienced in the church, and lived out in each one of us through the Holy Spirit. So here is the ultimate conclusion. When the covenant of redemption comes to full fruition, Revelations 21, there will be a place. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it will be for his people, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, to experience God's presence for all eternity. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. To that we cry, Maranatha, Lord, come. Lord, come soon. Pray with me. Well, dearly Father, as we raise our praise to you, we know that you are here, you are in our midst. There's no need to invite you, as we hear sometimes from others, because you are already here. We thank you, Lord. What would we do if you weren't? We worship you, Lord, not God who created the world and sent it off to fend for itself, but rather by your imminence and by your nearness, you ordain everything that is to occur in the world and in our hearts and our lives. Lord, that is an amazing thing. It is something that is unsearchable. As David said, it is too, too high for me. I can't understand it. But yet you tell us it is true. So I pray, Lord, for those that may be struggling right now, as we all do, I believe, those times in our lives when you feel far off. If it is because of our, um, help us search our hearts, Lord, it may be us. We may have something that we need to repent and come to you to seek that unbroken fellowship that we read of in 1 John 1, 9. It may be, Lord, it is just a difficult time for us in life, and you allow us to go through those things, Lord, but you never leave us. You use those things. Lord, you have promised that these light and momentary afflictions are raising for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that is because you are near, and you are moving it all because you love us and you care for us and you want us to grow in you and to get to know you better. We thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that we will seek, in some sense, your nearness. We know that you are here. We need to study. We need to meditate on your word. 
We need to be together to strengthen each other. Oh, Lord, you are such a great God, and we thank you. Be with each one of us as we go right now. And again, Lord, we raise our voices to you and praise for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.